Well, good morning. <laughs> it's good to see everyone here as well as uh, at home. Pray that the Lord is uh, blessing you and uh, keeping you uh, in good health. We're going to continue in our uh, short series on resolve. Last week we looked at resolving to live wisely and uh, the study itself is taken from selections out of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Last week we looked at Philippians uh, 3. This week we're going to go backward a little bit and take a look at uh, the first part of Philippians chapter 2 and see where that influences how we can live humbly. Please uh, join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, if, uh, if we take an honest assessment of our own lives and not just the surrounding culture, we, we readily confess that humility is not a virtue to which we are naturally drawn. It is not something that we uh, practice at times willingly or even obediently, uh, but we know, Lord God, that you have provided in your word uh, sure and certain instruction, as well as uh, the example of our Savior of what humility looks like, how it is to be practiced, and how it can be a blessing uh, to you and to others in your church. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord God, for the power of your word. We thank you for the creativity to worship you in art and in music and in poetry. We thank you for words that arise out of your word and give expression to the, the worship that is in our heart, as well as, Father, those times when we are in need of... Uh, lament and expressing our grief and our sorrow to you. We pray, Lord God, specifically for our nation as it continues to wander through this season of pandemic with the shortages, Lord God, and supply chains, the, just the, the politicization of everything. We pray for um, the guidance of your Holy Spirit that we might in every way be salt and light, and that we would speak words of truth and beauty, encouragement and comfort, Father, in a world that is in desperate need of such things. We turn our attention now, Lord God, to your word. We submit ourselves to it because it is your word. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart, that we might know you better, that we might know the hope to which you are calling us and continue to uphold us as we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to read the, uh, the first 13 verses of Philippians 2 and just focus on uh, some select verses from this uh, very marvelous beginning to this second chapter. Paul writes, this is after having encouraged the Philippians at the end of Philippians 1 to stand firm in their faith, contending as one person uh, for the faith. He then leads into his uh, main topic here in chapter 2 when he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What images come to mind when you hear the word humility? What pictures come to mind? What kind of person do you, do you think of when you hear or think of the word humility? When the Apostle Paul wanted to illustrate humility and to give us a, a, a living illustration of what that is, he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that in Christ we have this one who, though he was in the form of God, he writes, did not consider equality or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Paul goes on to say that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a, a humbling and a humiliation that Christ undergoes for our salvation, for our redemption. Paul begins this second chapter of Philippians with an interesting phrase. He says, so if there is any encouragement. But let's be sure here that Paul is not doubting that there is any encouragement. That word if, when you see it more often than not in Paul's letters, and particularly in the New Testament, can best be translated since. That there is encouragement in Christ. So since there is encouragement in Christ, he says, since there is comfort from his love, since there is participation in the Spirit. Then he says, now I want you to make my joy complete by having these things. And he's going to talk about the thing he wants them to imitate is the very humility of Christ. And going back to last week's sermon, looking forward to uh, chapter 3, we see where the humility of Christ is why Paul willingly suffered the loss of all things. It's the humility of Christ that explains why Paul resolved to know him, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. The humility of Jesus explains why Paul chose to forget what lies behind and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every time we talk about humility, however, we run into a problem. And the problem is this. <clears throat> no one is born humble. We read about it in reciting through the New City Catechism. No one is born humble. Just go to Instagram, and there's proof of that. Go to uh, TikTok, and you'll find there that the proud are willing to boast about their accomplishments, no matter how small, no matter how meager. 
I cooked an egg. <laughs> Thank you. Right? I mixed a drink. Right? I've done a dance. Right? But the humble avoids self-promotion, avoids the temptation to promote themselves above others. Where the proud will seek and gain their sense of worth from the number of likes they can accumulate, the humble choose to work in obscurity. The proud may seek what is best for them, but the humble, says Paul, will seek what is best for the other. The proud will live with a sense of entitlement. The humble live with a sense of gratitude. The proud keeps their seat on the subway. The humble gives it up. Given that Paul promotes Jesus as the ultimate example of humility, let's safely conclude this, that when we practice humility, we are following the pattern that is set by Jesus. And that looking at the, the rest of the, the chapter, you see it there on the slide, is that's the, the schematic that we'll follow. That when we practice humility, we are following the pattern of Jesus. So that practicing humility, first of all, means considering one another as more significant than ourselves, more important than ourselves. Because from Paul's perspective, humility is both a Christian virtue... But since none of us is born humble, it is also a learned behavior. We have to learn to be humble. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's the fruit of a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, any attempt to practice humility must be done in the presence of a community of like-minded men and women who themselves are in a faith relationship with Jesus it's hard to be humble in private. It's hard to be humble without there being some public interaction with others, whether it's in your family or whether it's at work, but especially and most importantly in the church. There's a reason why the scriptures talk about iron sharpening iron. It's because it's when our needs and our selfishness bumps up against the needs and the selfishness of others, the contest of wills can either create sparks which ignite a conflagration, which then break a relationship, or we can choose the Christ-like manner and say, I'm going to subjugate my desires, subjugate my will, subjugate my, my agenda, so that the other can succeed, so that the other may be promoted, so that the other may be blessed. That's why Paul will say in verses 2 and 3, uh, uh, three and four, rather, do nothing from selfish ambition. An earlier translation in the ESV has do nothing from rivalry. Right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or have a sense of a rivalry. This is particularly important in a marriage where at times, particularly early on, there's almost this rivalry of, of wanting to be better than the other or always wanting to compete. But Paul says that's not the attitude of Christ. It's not the attitude of Christians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, but in humility count one another more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And once again, we see that problem, don't we? We are not naturally inclined to think like this. And because we're not naturally inclined to think like this, we are not naturally inclined to behave like this. 
So the attitude of the heart is more important in terms of driving us to practice humility. And Paul talks about humility as a practice in community when he says, in humility count one another more significant than ourselves. That phrase, one another, is one of Paul's most popular phrases. He uses it a lot. You can do a, a concordance look or a, a Google search and see how many times of all the New Testament writers, Paul uses that phrase more often than any other. As one scholar notes, Paul uh, uses that phrase, one another, because everything, everything that we do is for one another. In a quick search of Paul's use of the phrase, just a limited search, uh, I, I just pulled these out. You'll see where in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, Paul says we are to care for one another. We are to love one another, he says in 1 Thessalonians 3 and then Romans 13. We are to bear one another's burdens, he says in Galatians. We are to be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another. It's from Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. We are to live in harmony with one another. That's Romans 12. And we are to consider one another as more significant than ourselves. That's Philippians and again in Romans. All of these one another's, all of these commands that Paul gives concerning how we relate to one another all flow from living wisely and living humbly. And if we're honest, and most of the times we're not, but if we're honest, this is extremely difficult. It's difficult to set aside your agenda. And in a small way, you, you see this in terms of how husbands and wives make the bed or how they arrange the silverware, or how dishes are washed, right? There's a way of doing it. And it's painful, it was very painful for my wife to, my wife to particularly when I was ironing my shirts. My wife would watch me, Jill would watch me iron my shirt, and she said, that's taking a long time. And I could just tell she would just sort of like, there's a way to do that that's so much faster than your way. I say, but this is the way I do it. Or, or the, the bed, the, the way you fold those hospital corners, right? So that when you, you know, it's like George, you know, tucked and untucked, right? If, you, because when you, if it's tucked too tightly, your feet kind of splay out. Right? And anyway, you get the point. Humility is hard, and those are humorous things, but those little things can add up. Because if we, if we refuse to retreat there, in the little thing, it's going to be even harder to retreat in the big thing. And it can't be done. Humility can't be practiced without the help of the Holy Spirit. I, several years ago, and I was going through a particularly stressful season uh, in my life in ministry, I struggled with humility because my, I felt as if my identity was being attacked. And when your identity is attacked, you get very prideful. You begin to want your rights. You not only want respect, you demand respect. You begin to think, my cause is right, and I want it to triumph no matter what. And then you want your antagonists to fail, and to fail spectacularly. And then I studied this text. I had read it many, many times. And the deeper I drilled down into Paul's words, the more profoundly I felt 
the weight of them. Because I realized that my problem was not with the people who were giving me trouble. My problem was me. It's like that old illustration that's used about the, the British author G.K. Chesterton. Someone had written a long letter to the editor in the British newspaper and asking, what is wrong with the world? And then listed a whole series of things that were wrong. And Chesterton felt compelled to reply. He says, to the reader who asks, what is wrong with the world? I am. That may seem a bit of an overstatement. But if we are honest about ourselves, when we look at how we deal with conflict, many, many times, the person at the center of the conflict is not the person causing you trouble. It's the person that you look at in the mirror. I was getting in the way of what God wanted to teach me about humility. And as painful as those lessons were to learn, here's what I took away from what Paul said and what that season taught me, that humble people consider others, including their enemies, as more significant than themselves. So that person at work that is always on you, that is a rival, that seems to always frustrate you for no good reason other than the fact that that's how they gain a sense of satisfaction and importance. That person, as you look at them with a godly perspective, to count them as more significant than yourself. Because when you do that, I learned that, amazingly enough, it brings honor to God because I am treating that person with the same grace with which God treated me when I was his enemy. That humble people pray like Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That as much as I want to get even, that is not my right. That is not my responsibility. Humble people love their enemies with the same love that God has for us in Christ. And here's the even harder part. You pray for them, and you pray for their good. If you can do that, if you can look at someone that is in conflict with you, and you can pray for them, and pray for their good, and forgive them as you are forgiven in Christ, you are making tremendous strides toward forgetting what lies behind and pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ because you are following the pattern of humility that is set by Jesus. Remember that when he was reviled, says Peter in his letter, he did not respond with reviling. When he was cursed, he did not curse back. But as a lamb that was led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And he suffered all of that. That is not easy. I, there was a, a, a guy that I knew in a church in, uh, in Ohio who was born and raised in Chicago. And he was, if you've seen the movie The Untouchables, in that scene in Sean Connery in the church where he talks to Kevin Costner and says, you know, they come at you with a knife, you could, they come up with a gun. They put one of yours in a hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. It's the Chicago way. That was a mentality that this brother had. And it took him years to work out the Chicago way in order to follow the Jesus way. I don't know what your background and upbringing was, whether you grew up in the suburbs like me or in the, on the city streets where it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But Jesus lays all of that aside. And the Jesus way is to pray for your enemies and to pray that God would bless them, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusting him to raise you up at his time. When it comes to practicing humility, in other words, it doesn't matter whether the people that you are called to be humble toward deserve to be humble toward. The fact is they need it. And you need to be humble. We need to be humble. Remember that God loved us when we did not deserve his love. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. When we deserved his wrath, God lavished upon us his grace. And Jesus died, remember, so that we could be forgiven. He became obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross, so that we would be spared that death of a cross. He put God the Father's will above his own. In fact, Jesus put our need, he put our need for grace, for mercy, and forgiveness above his own need for self-preservation. When we practice humility, we are behaving according to the example that is set for us by Christ. When we practice humility, we promote also the unity of the church. When Jesus resolved to practice humility, he became obedient. He considered the Father's agenda as more important than his own. As a matter of fact, Jesus said at one point his food was to do the will of his Father. And when Jesus resolved to practice humility, he looked at the big picture. That enabled him to set aside his agenda so that he could follow the Father's plan. And if we're honest, we all have an agenda. We all have an idea of how we want things to go. We want things to go our way. We want things to fit neatly into our pattern and our way of thinking. But that's not how life goes. We can't and are not in control of everything as much as we think we want to be or need to be. Sometimes practicing humility means resisting the temptation to be in control. It's like watching a, a toddler learning to tie their shoe without Velcro, right? That makes, that's a tremendous blessing to every parent, and they know it. Like Velcro, there you go. You just put the thing on, you snap that over, and you're wood. Watch a child learning how to tie their shoe as a parent, and you're like, we, we're going to be late. <laughs> but, and, then, and then what? You try to help, and the child pushes you away, and you've just got to go... And you wait, because you can't be in control of that if, that, if that's to happen. That's an act of humility at that point. The strength to do this, obviously, comes from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes practicing humility means hearing hard things. Having the truth spoken to you in love. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us sort through all of the verbiage all of the, the, the negative thoughts that come upon us, all of the desire to be self-defensive and to rise to defending ourselves, it's the Holy Spirit that calms us down and allows us to sift through all of those words to the kernel of truth as to what's being said. Humility lets the Holy Spirit sift through all of those words to the kernel of truth. And sometimes humility does mean 
blessing those who insult you. It means also learning to say, particularly for husbands, the, what are probably the hardest three words in the English language to say. I was wrong. If, if you, years ago, I don't know if it's still on anymore, there was a show called The Red Green Show. Bunch of manly guys who were in a lodge up in northern Canada, and they used to have this creed. And the creed went like this, I'm a man, I can change, if I have to, I guess. <laughs> That's not humility. <laughs> That's the opposite of humility. We can change, but we can only change as a result of the Holy Spirit working upon our heart. And sometimes practicing humility means following Jesus' example and saying the other phrase that's even hard to say for us. To look at God in prayer and say, not my will, but your will be done. This is not what I want. This is not what I desire. But I know that this is how you are conforming me to the image of Christ. So not my will, but your will be done. That God does not often... It's rare that he pulls us out of a situation to make us like Christ. Or more often than not, he leads us through that valley in conforming us to Christ. He leads us through that season of conflict. He leads us through that season of darkness. He leads us through that season of depression, that season of despair, that season where we sense his absence. And I love, I think it's Tim Keller who has that marvelous expression that a sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence. Because you can't sense his absence unless you have at one time sensed his presence. And sometimes humility is allowing God to lead us through those moments so that we can be more and more like his son. When we consider one another more significant than ourselves, we practice humility. We strengthen the unity of the church. We strengthen bonds of trust. And that requires the second part of what Paul talks about in this section, jumping ahead to verses 12 to 13, because when we practice humility, it means working out our salvation as part of a community. There's no avoiding it, that we have to practice community in the con uh, humility in the context of the Christian church. We know this because Paul says so. He says, therefore, my beloved, after he's given this marvelous example of what Jesus is like, in that hymn from verses 6 to 11, he then tells us in 12 and 13, therefore, the therefore is based on everything that's come before that. As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think at this point, Paul is making a grand assumption. It's the same assumption that every pastor, every preacher makes when he stands before a congregation to share the word of God. And the assumption Paul is making is this, that the Philippians to whom he is writing are indeed Christians and are indeed obeying and living in obedience to the word of God and are indeed working out their salvation. So when I or Pastor John or Pastor Eric or Pastor Justin, if Pastor Paul stand here in this pulpit and we preach to you the Word of God, our assumption is that you are born again, you are committed to following Christ, 
You are committed to submitting to His Lordship and authority in your life as Savior, and that you are willingly following Him in everything, and that you are working out what He has worked in by His Spirit. It's a big assumption. And, you're ma- and you, in a sense, <laughs> having the same assumption about me, that the things I say are the things that I indeed am practicing. And when Paul says this to the Philippians, that I am confident that you are obeying not only in my presence, because it's always easy, right, when the teacher's in the room to look like you're doing busy, and as soon as they leave or you get a substitute, it's like party time. And Paul's saying, I know that whether it's me or Timothy or someone else there, you are working out your salvation. So he's not correcting bad behavior here. He's not correcting any laziness on behalf of the Philippians. On the contrary, he is encouraging them. Keep doing what you've been doing. Keep pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. He wants them to work out what God has worked in by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he says the, the person who is working those things in you is God himself. And he's doing it for his good pleasure. This isn't just a rote exercise. This isn't just something I want you to do as a means of busy work to make sure that you're always on your best behavior. But this is a way that you can bring glory to God by allowing the power of God to transform you more and more into the image of His Son. So that as you have already obeyed, keep on obeying. He is confident that since they have obeyed in the past, They will keep on obeying him by practicing what Jesus has taught them. And the reason he is so confident is because it is God who is at work in them. So even though we have this assumption that there is a a, a sense where everyone is working out their salvation, we are confident in the power of God to make that come about. And when we call you higher, it is not because you haven't done enough. We're called, we call you higher as pastors because you have already obeyed and that there's more of Christ to discover the more we humbly submit to Him and obey Him and follow Him. It's, a way of thinking about this is when our daughter Liz was uh, taking voice lessons when she started at, I think, eight or nine years old, and then every year as she progressed uh, in her lessons, her voice teacher would give her increasingly more and more difficult pieces to learn. Not because she hadn't learned anything in the past, but exactly and precisely because she had learned in the past. Her voice was trained. And in order to keep it at peak and optimal performance level, she was given more and more difficult pieces to learn so that she could sing them and would discipline herself and train her. And that's what Paul is saying here. So that the humility he is calling us to practice is not because we haven't practiced it, but because you have And there's so much more to learn through considering others more significant than yourselves. Because humility takes practice. It takes work. We don't get it right all the time. But the power to do so comes from God himself. Remember, the humility that God requires is made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit who helps us follow the example of Christ. And then just to back up a moment. So we have... Humility, considering others more important than ourselves. Working out our salvation as part of a community. And then 
uh, that middle section, just to return to the middle section, practicing humility makes us more and more like Jesus. That middle section, verses 6 through 11, let me read them to you again. This is where the prelude to this is uh, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, writes Paul. And this is where the hymn begins. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is universal agreement, as I said, that verses 6 through 11 form a part of an early Christian hymn. And the key to understanding the hymn is in verse 5, where Paul talks about have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another translation says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus had. The implication is that people who follow Jesus should think like him. And Paul develops this theme. He makes it clear that our unity, our progress, our growth as a church is dependent upon every member of the community practicing humility. Having the same attitude toward one another that Jesus has. Because when we think like Jesus, we act like him. We serve one another like him. We treat one another the way he treats us. Think about how Jesus treated people. From little children, remember when the disciples tried to keep children away from Jesus because in that culture, children were to be seen and not heard. They were a nuisance. They were like autumn leaves that gathered at the bottom of a tree. You sort of raked them over to a corner, just left them there. But Jesus took the children into his arms and he blessed them. He treats outsiders to the kingdom of Israel as though they deserve to be inside the kingdom of Israel because that's exactly where they belong. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. He even speaks kindly, even though he speaks at times harshly, to the self-righteous Pharisees. See, he puts the needs of others above his own needs. Always speaking the truth, always speaking the truth in love, always acting true to himself. He's never duplicitous. He never covers his agenda. He is always out front with what he does. That's what a humble person is like. Pride kills that. When people don't have a Christ-like attitude, when pride infiltrates a church, when it infiltrates a relationship, a marriage, a business, it's like a cancer and it spreads. And it chokes out things like love and grace and compassion and selflessness. Those things get ignored. That's why I think the earlier translation in the ESV had said, uh, do nothing out of a rivalry. Because pride establishes rivalry. It's Jets versus Giants, right? It's Yankees versus Mets. You've got to declare you know, where, where you are. Or you don't care. Pride 
can and often does uh, divide a church and destroy its ministry. when It gnaws away uh, at the fundamentals of what we believe and who we are. It kills um, unity because it kills true Christianity. It, what it does is it puts too much faith in our idea of what the church should be rather than in what the church actually is, is the bride of Christ. And Paul, when he cites Christ as an example of what humility is, remember, he, he says this beautiful thing, that Christ, even though he possessed equality with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be lorded over us. You think of his encounters, think of Jesus' encounters with people. Never does Jesus say, well, do you know who I am? Let me pull out my card and I'll show you. But he always takes the, the second seat. The one through whom all things were made became like the very creatures he created in order to redeem us, in order to make us more like him. Where we insist he is more like us, Jesus comes to make us more like him. We are created by God through Christ. So he knows how we think. He knows the inner working of our heart, and of our mind. <laughs> but, but despite all those things, he loves us anyway. Despite all of our pettiness, my pettiness, my pride, Paul says Jesus made himself nothing. Think about that. I think in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, that we might through him inherit the riches of God's kingdom. Jesus poured his eternal nature into our mortal humanity. All so that he might pour his life out for ours. The old hymn talks about Jesus emptying himself of all but love. Yet in doing so, he was rejected by a rebellious and prideful and selfish humanity. And why? so that by his humble obedience he might purchase men and women for God by the shedding of his blood. And during his life on earth, Jesus continually emptied himself, continually poured out himself by serving others. And that act of service is an act of humility, it's an act of obedience. But what does that mean? Jesus made himself nothing. How can the eternal, how can he who possesses all things be nothing. The mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus adds to his character our flesh. That he somehow adds to who he is the fact that he is now human. That he is now God in human flesh. He made himself nothing, in other words, by doing something. Something unimaginable. Something Miraculous. He made himself nothing by doing everything his father commanded him. He made himself nothing by considering the will of his father as more significant than his own. He made himself nothing by considering our needs greater than his own. So when we think of humility, we think of setting aside, putting down, self-denial, which is true. But Jesus showed us that humility is also an adding to. 
Remember, we're proud from birth. We have to learn humility. We have to add it to our life by obeying God as Jesus did. And the mystery of the incarnation is that despite having everything, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very form of a slave and by sharing in human nature. If we want to have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus had, we have to practice that Christ-like humility. And so, how does that work out in a marriage? How does that work out in a work relationship? When you really don't respect your boss because you know you know more than he does. And yet, you have to do what he wants or she wants because you're the employee and they're the boss. And you have to find a creative way to express the fact that the way that they want to do it may not actually work. And that you have an idea that may work better. And you need to pray for the wisdom and insight to humbly present that. Or how do you, as a husband, ask your wife for forgiveness and serve her in a way that lets her know that she is loved the way that Christ loved the church? How do you, as a wife, respect your husband? even though he may not be taking the spiritual lead that he's supposed to as a husband? How do you as a child talk to your parent in a respectful way when you don't like the things that they are telling you you can't do or the things you must do? You learn by following Christ's example, by praying for your boss, for your mom or your dad, or for your child. You pray for your spouse. And you wait until the Spirit opens up the appropriate moment to say what needs to be said so that you can say it in a way that's humble and loving. Humility is hard. It's not something we are given to. But it bears great benefit for those around us. Leo Tolstoy, uh, I've never tried to read, I think, he, he will war and peace, right? I've never tried to read the book. Very long book. Almost as long as the movie. If you've ever seen the movie, it's like, it's Russian, so it just goes on forever. Right? They like to talk. He wrote a short story called Two Old Men. About two men who set out on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the story is about how the, the paths of these two men diverge. And how their paths diverge helps us think about humility. The two men, friends, Ephim and Elisha, they decide that before they die, they're going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And after months of planning, they, they set out on this journey. After collecting everything they think they'll need to make the trip, they begin to walk toward Jerusalem. After a couple of days or so, they come to a village that seems deserted. No one is about, no one, there's no activities, not even any dogs moving. And so seeing a, a small hut on the outskirts of town, they decide to go in to investigate to see what is the matter. As soon as they walk into the hut, they realize something is drastically wrong. The hut is dark and the smell of death lingers in the air. Searching for a lamp or a lantern to, to light, they, they do and they see that the, the hut is filled with, with bodies, but to their amazement, the bodies are still alive. The people living in the hut are still alive. And Ephim sends his friend, uh, Elisha rather, wants to stay and help. So he sends his, his friend Ephim to the next town to get help. He says, I'll catch up with you. He says, you, you just go on. 
But as Elisha opens more doors, more windows, more huts, he sees more and more people who are on death's door, and he, he decides to stay and help. He never travels to Jerusalem, and Ephim does make it to Jerusalem, and he waits for his friend. He waits several months, almost a year, for his friend to join him, and he never does. And realizing that he may never see his friend again, he sets off from Jerusalem back home. And while Ephim is walking home, he comes to a village. And as he comes to this village, there's something familiar about this village, but somehow different. There is activity, there are children playing, there are markets open, people are engaging in commerce, they're talking to one another. There's even music coming from somewhere. And he recognizes that it's the same village that he and his friend Elisha visited almost a year before. And he asks the villagers, I was here, what happened? What, what made this great change? And in simple innocence, the villagers explain that months before, a man had stopped by, and he gave them back their life. Elisha set aside his needs, his goal, his agenda, by counting others and their needs as more significant than his own. When we practice humility, we consider one another as more significant than ourselves. We work out our salvation as part of a community. And in doing so, we become more and more like Jesus. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we acknowledge that humility does not come easily to us, but it is a requirement if we are to become more and more like Christ and to promote the unity and the well-being of your church, our families, our businesses, our schools. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us and you would teach us to be more and more humble, that as we trust you, we might bring glory to you and to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus himself. This we ask and pray in his name. Amen.